the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls so that we can answer any Bible questions or life questions that you have. Uh, All you have to do is call us, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email us your questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And as I remind you, every day if you're driving in your car, the safest way is to use the hands-free feature of the free KSLR mobile app. All you have to do is hit the Call Now button, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer with your question. And the program is always more interesting when you are involved, so we would love for your calls. Well, because it's Wednesday, and I don't say things like this to plug my own Bible studies, but tonight's Bible study... In 1 Samuel chapter 27, it's sort of like a hidden gem, and it meets us where we are. And this is one of those um, chapters where if you'll let the Lord do it, uh, he'll help so many people. If you struggle with discouragement or depression, uh, if you find yourself uh, overwhelmed by your circumstances and you find those times when your faith is a little bit lacking or you're facing something that you're terrified of. Uh, And, you know, we have a tendency in those times to sort of forget about Jesus in that process. This is really an important Bible study. So uh, I realize not everybody can come. Uh, That's not my point. But we're going to live stream it at calvarysa.com as we do all of our Bible studies. Uh, It will be archived by tomorrow morning if you can't gear. But this is a Bible study that uh, if any of those maladies apply to you, uh, you, you really need to hear. I'm really looking forward to what the Lord is going to do. Every once in a while, I'll approach a study, and usually it's in one of these unexpected places where I really feel like the Lord uh, is going to minister some healing to hearts. So uh, tonight at 7 o'clock, we're going to be here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. It also means that tomorrow... Paula will be live in studio with us um, on the date the edition. So, ladies, it's a day that we set aside uh, especially for you, not specifically or only for you, but especially for you. So if you need any uh, questions uh, answered or you need to be encouraged in any way, uh, Paula will be live here in studio to do it. One final thing, just I would ask for your prayers for Paula and our ladies. We're sending a pretty large group of ladies down to Reynosa, Mexico. Uh, a church we planted uh, many years ago, 10, 12 years ago now, I guess. Uh, and she's, and this, the ladies here are taking a, a um, retreat that we did earlier this year. Uh, some of the ladies from Reynosa were there, and they said, well, you do the same thing uh, for us. And so we're, they're leaving uh, really early on Friday morning, and I personally would covet your prayers that the travel, uh, uh, crossing the border, all the other stuff would go really, really 
well uh, for them. And then most important of all is that people would get saved or at least be encouraged in their walk with the Lord. Uh, the ladies in Reynosa, it's a tough ministry, but they're doing a great job down there. Pastor Martin and his beautiful wife, Adriana, uh, they're doing a wonderful job serving the Lord. So we would appreciate your prayers for our ladies and for the ladies in Reynosa. Okay, one more time, 340-9585 uh, for your live calls, and we'd love to have them. Let me go to the first one here is a question from Howard. He says, how should I respond to the seeming increase in American nationalism in the evangelical church? Uh, Howard, I've asked, answered questions similar to this in the past. Uh, I think the, the way you should respond is to just find a church. Don't worry about the group. Don't be worried about the title evangelical. But find a church that teaches the Bible. You see, if we teach the Bible, just straight through the Bible, um, rather than opining on current events or or uh, affiliating or associating with a particular party over another one. I, I think you find a church that teaches the Bible and you're already protected from that type of exposure. Um, the reasons for the increase in American nationalism in the church, I think, has to do more with, with uh, ideals and worldview uh, certainly the thing about Christianity, uh, we tend as Christians to be more conservative. We value life. Uh, we would be uh, without exception. We should be without exception, period. But we were, we're virtually in the evangelical community uh, opposed to abortion. Um, uh, we, we support um, biblical standards on morality, whether it's um, sexual immorality or or, uh, or gender uh, issues. Uh, and, and I think that's why you see that connection. But here's what we need to understand. And I think this is what gets lost when we overly, and I will also use the word overtly identify uh, with one party over the other, is we, we have a tendency to forget, Howard, that the people that aren't saved are the objects of our ministry. And I think this identification with American nationalism or conservative politics, I think that identity uh, causes us to sort of take a us against them or a them against us point of view. When in fact, we shouldn't expect unbelievers to think like believers. And that's why we should be active in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Howard, the one final thing I'm going to say is it hurts this pastor's heart to no end that Christian pastors... Um, have become so political and have used their pulpits as a platform to try to influence votes instead of influencing hearts. And the only way that hearts can be influenced, the only way, is for people to surrender to Jesus Christ and for those who are Christians who have taken this nationalistic approach I think what we really need to do is get filled with the Holy Spirit and remember that our mission, our commission, is spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not changing the political structure of this world. I think a lot of times we Christians don't really act out what we believe. You know, most evangelicals are pre-tribulation, premillennial in their eschatology. If we understood that, we wouldn't look for the world to change because of what the church says. We'd look for individuals to be saved and change. And we sometimes put too big an agenda in front of us. It's not that God can't do big agendas. It's just that in these last days, God is concerned with the smaller agenda, saving individuals in this dispensation we call grace. Nothing wrong with being a patriot. But I think when we send a message in the church, you know, if I were to get up Sunday and deliver a political message, it doesn't matter what side I was on, I would disenfranchise half of the church. Is that really the job of the church? Of course not. The job of the church is to be one, as Jesus said, he and the Father are one. 
doesn't mean we have to agree on everything, but what it means is that we can agree on who he is and let Jesus do the work. I think sometimes as evangelicals, we um, we don't demonstrate very great faith in God. We we try so hard to change things in a worldly sense. Yet Paul said our weapons are not carnal or not worldly. But the weapons that we fight with are supernatural weapons. And the way we do that is by walking in the power of the Spirit. So Howard, I hope that helps uh, answer your question at least a little bit. 340-9585. Here is a question from Jason. Why doesn't Paul mention the office of pastor in the pastoral epistles? He acknowledges elders, but not pastors, which leads me to believe that we shouldn't have pastors. Well, Jason, um, Ephesians chapter 4, as clearly as it can possibly be, says that pastors are given to the church as a gift from God. Now, if you say we shouldn't have pastors, then you'd have to explain away uh, that very clear scripture when God talks about giving gifts to the church. Apostles, New Testament prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. Those are the gifts that God gave. So why would he mention pastors if we weren't to have pastors? Now, the other thing I think is just uh, a, a lack of understanding, uh, Jason, um, when you're reading the pastoral epistles. Uh, the King James uses the word overseers or bishops. Uh, some translations uh, use the word elders. Um, but Paul is talking to the same group of people. An overseer is not an overseer of a group of churches. It's an overseer of a church. That, that's the man that we call the pastor. A bishop um, is just another translation of that same Greek word. And so when we're looking at, at what Paul is describing in the pastoral epistles, he's talking about the office we call a pastor. The other word that is translated is elders, and it has nothing to do with elders the way that our church culture views elders. You know, in our church, we're set up with uh, the pastor and then a board of elders. I've been really blessed to have wonderfully godly men stand beside me for all these years. We've had very little turnover. Uh, and, and it's just been a wonderful blessing. But we we call them elders to distinguish them from the pastor. And the reason we have them is because um, to, to incorporate in this country, we've got to obey the laws. To incorporate in this country, we have to have uh, a board of elders. Um, they're they're the, the board here uh, that, that sort of administers the affairs of the church. But but that's not the way Paul intended. He's, he he uses elders and overseers and bishops interchangeably. But in every case, it refers to the man who is what we would call the pastor of the church. Now, why does he use it in the plural? I've had this argument put at me uh, before, put to me before, Jason. The reason he would say appoint elders in the churches is because there were multiple churches. There were house churches in the first century church. And so there would be smaller groups of people spread throughout a region. When he writes to the churches of Galatia, he's not writing to one single group of people, but many groups spread out. The same with the churches in Macedonia, the churches in Thessalonica, uh, the church in Rome, the church of the Hebrews. There would be many church meetings spread out throughout a region. And when Paul is writing, he's writing to them. So the plural elders is very clearly an indication that there is an elder slash pastor appointed head over every church. But because there are many of them, it's plural. So that's, he does mention the office of a pastor. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 again makes it very clear. Um, So a little more understanding. sort of rightly dividing the word, Jason will will clarify that. You know, and, and Jason, I don't mean anything personal by this because obviously I don't know who you are. But a lot of times people that take this approach uh, do so because they don't want to be under authority. They will claim that we're a priesthood of believers. And while that's true, that doesn't mean that we all have equal authority in the church. God appoints leaders in the church and he appoints leaders because people need leaders. And when somebody doesn't want to submit to a leader or when somebody has 
a problem with something that the leader's done. They want an equal say-so. That does not constitute a priesthood of believers. The priesthood of believers are, are one in Christ, and we all honor the Lord in that endeavor by being obedient to what we've been called to do. So pastors are a gift from God to the church. Uh, we should submit to those joyfully and eagerly submit to those in spiritual authority over us. And by that, I don't mean we let them run our lives. We don't have to call them and ask if we can buy a car or ask them, well, I want to take this girl on a date. That's not what I mean. But when it comes to the operation of the church, there has to be order. And there also has to be order, Jason, in the home. So that's the leadership. You have the authority, Jason, if you're married in your home, but you honor that authority by recognizing that you yourself are a man under authority. But pastors are a very important part of the church. And you say, well, you say that because you're a pastor. Well, I say it because that's what the Bible says, and I'm honored to be called by God to be a, a pastor. Greatest gig of my life by far. 340-9585 for your live calls. We'd love to have them. Or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Dale. Uh, what do you think about Christians sending their kids to public schools instead of private schools? Dale, your questions. Uh, timing is interesting uh, because I, I just had another pastor who uh, just last week sent an, an email uh, and he was roundly critical. He made the, the, the overreaching statement that said uh, uh, to a bunch of pastors, um, uh, I'm sure none of you would send your children to a public school because you love God and pastors can't do something like that. And he got blasted, Dale, because the truth of the matter is it's none of his business where people send their kids to school. That's a job that the parents have. They make that decision prayerfully, recognizing that they're the ones given the responsibility of caring for that child by God. And they're going to give account of stewardship by God. But to say it's wrong to send your kids to public school is the worst kind of legalism. I personally think that public schools really need Christian kids. I know the kids in those schools need other Christian kids. There needs to be light in the darkness. Now, it's true that your kids are going to be exposed to ungodly teachings, but they are anyway. Your kids are walking around with computers on their telephones. So they're going to be exposed to all this stuff. Well, they're going to be exposed to immorality. Well, look at their telephones. Look at the lyrics of the music they're listening. So you don't insulate your children. Now, I say this, Dale, as somebody who uh, has here a, a wonderful um, private school. Now, obviously, most people can't afford private schools, but everybody can afford Calvary Chapel of San Antonio's school because it's free. Now, the problem with that is we don't have any more space in the school. If I had five times the size, I'd still have a waiting list of kids many years long. So what's somebody to do if we don't have room for them and they can't afford a public Christian, or I'm sorry, a private Christian education? Public school and homeschooling. And honestly, Dale, and I'm going to ruffle some feathers when I say this, homeschooling is a disaster unless the parent or parents are gifted teachers. And too many kids are homeschooled to insulate them from the problems in this world. And I think that's really doing your child a disservice. Your kids need to have a sense of time and urgency. They need to understand there's a schedule. Often homeschool devolves into what I call school in pajamas. Nobody has to get up and go have any particular time to start. And that's the kind of stuff that damages kids. We find almost without exception, and I say almost advisedly because there are always a few parents out there who are doing a great job, a wonderful job teaching their kids at home. But we find when kids come here who have been homeschooled for any length of time that they're way behind our kids when we test them to see where they ought to 
what level they ought to enter. So if that choice doesn't exist, public schools are what we got. Your kids need to be in school. But the job of the mom and the dad is to prepare their children to witness for Christ, to stand for Jesus in the middle of the public schools. Light needs to go where it's dark. And our jobs as parents is to prepare our kids to live the world. Not to be of the world, of course, but to live in this world. And the way we live, Jesus said to be salt and light. So if a Christian family decides they're going to send their children to a public school and that decision has been bathed in prayer and they feel like they've got God's heart on it, who am I, who is anybody else to question their judgment? I think, Dale, a lot of times we'd all be a lot better off if we just mind our own business. Instead of talk about people, we just pray for people. So that's what I think about Christians sending their kids to public schools instead of private schools. Here is a question from PJ. PJ says, do you think a Christian should pursue practicing as an attorney? Uh, Christian Paul and I were just laughing about this today. Uh, in, in our church, we, we've, we've, we've been blessed with so many gifted people. So many gifted people. And um, I, I mean, literally, from all walks of life and all career opportunities. The one thing that we haven't had are attorneys. People always come and say, Pastor, do you know an attorney? Do you know an attorney? And my answer is no. Now, we have a, a, a beautiful young woman who's a friend of mine. Um, uh, I love her like a daughter, uh, who is a practicing attorney. She you know, was a JAG lawyer, and uh, she's just passed the Texas bar. Uh, and they, her and her husband, happily for us, are settling in, in uh, San Antonio. Uh, and, and so we can get advice. We can get some counsel if needed. But uh, I think that we really and truly do, I mean, really and truly do need Christians who should pursue careers as attorneys. It's hard because our system's most often not really about justice. It's not about guilt or innocence. It's not about repentance. It's it's about making deals and manipulating and but but what better place could there be for light? What better place could there be for light? I think there are Christians everywhere. But I, I think this is an area where God would truly bless the heart, PJ, of somebody who um, wants to rightly represent him. And people would say, well, you can't do it that way because this is a secular endeavor. You watch what God will do, PJ. You keep your heart right with God. You pursue being an attorney, but you do it according to God's word, not according, I mean, the the principles and the techniques and the procedures certainly have to be done according to the system of law that we have. But I think it would be a wonderful opportunity to greatly influence and impact the people in this world from a position of authority. Let me take it one step further, PJ. I also think and encourage every chance I get for Christians to become police officers. Christians who won't be jaded by their experiences on the street. Christians who would look at every criminal as an opportunity to show them who Jesus is, to be kind to people who aren't used to having kindness in their lives. Now, obviously, it's a tough job, but we've got an officer. We've got several officers here. There's lots of them. One of them is a retired chief here in San Antonio, and he's just the nicest man, the kindest man ever. And he had a 30-plus year career at SAPD. He's had the opportunity to impact more people in an environment that's typically foreign to what Christians experience. And you can do that. 
another officer in our church, I've actually ridden with him. And I've seen the good that he does. I've seen the power of God in his ministry as a police officer. It's hard. It's dangerous. But believe me, God would bless and God is pleased. And again, that goes for the other officers that we have. And, um, you know, we've got plumbers, we've got musicians, we've got tech geniuses at our church, we've got doctors, and um, we've got everything. But attorneys? Not yet, except for our newest one. So, PJ, I, I think it, it'd be something that would be a fruitful uh, mission field for you. Having just been in the legal system yesterday, <laughs> I didn't get arrested or anything. Uh, believe me, even the other attorneys need to see light. Hey, you can hear the music. We're down to 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We would love, love to have your phone calls in the second half of the program. You're listening to The Word to Center for Life, and I'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program the wednesday edition of the program 340-9585 for your live calls here is a question from our email inbox from john he says could you please explain the meaning and reason for 40 days as it pertains to fasting. Why so long for a fast? According to our current understanding, the body cannot last much more than 21 days without food, and the body cannot go more than 10 days without water. John, I don't think anybody can go 10 days without water, so that's just my comment. So he asks, how do we apply in our walk Jesus' time in the wilderness and other Bible characters who went through similar events? Is there a spiritual effect on our bodies in that situation? Does the weakening of our physical body have any correlation to Paul's statement of 2 Corinthians 12.10, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong? I guess what I'm asking is, if we choose to fast, do we really have to fast that long? John, two things about fasting. One, you don't have to fast. And you can fast for as long as you believe it's appropriate. So fasting is a free will offering to the Lord. Uh, Let me encourage you to sort of prayerfully read Isaiah chapter 58. It is the definitive passage on fasting in all of the Bible. For New Testament Christians especially, this is one of those uh, passages that tells you what God's heart is. Uh, A fast is a symbol of denying the flesh, uh, denying ourselves, and being completely surrendered to Jesus for a period of time. Sort of like a Nazarite vow in the Old Testament or some of the other oaths that were taken. Um, When we fast, we're simply identifying with the need to say no to us so that we can hear from God, so we can say yes to God. So when you fast, John, I'll get to your question specifically in just a moment, but when you fast, uh, make sure your motive is right. We don't fast to get something from God. Well, I really need some money, so I'm going to fast for 10 days. No, that's that's to miss the whole point of fasting. The point of fasting, the picture of fasting, is just denying oneself so that we can hear and be le- hear from and be led by the Holy Spirit. So fasting is something that's optional. It was a daily part of Jewish life. That's why you read about it so often in the Old Testament and during Jesus' ministry. But even then, when the religious leaders were fasting, they were guilty of fasting with the wrong heart. And Jesus basically tells them that there's no value in doing that. So when you see Jesus fasting for 40 days, or you see some of the other, these are supernatural things. Jesus went without food or water for 40 days, clearly enabled by God to do so. And the purpose of his 40-day fast without food or water was simply uh, to prepare him to be tempted by the enemy who was going to come to him in his weakest possible moment. 
and his answers to how to deal with the enemy when he was weak. Remember, the enemy is ruthless. He's a coward. And Jesus told us how to fight with the word. It is written. It is written. It is written. So whenever you see um, the 40-day fasts, uh, 40 is a number of testing. Uh, but the picture is just um, we're always being tested. First Corinthians 4, 2 says it's required that every man or woman given to trust by God must prove faithful. And so the fast is simply a time of testing, a time of drawing near to the Lord, but it cannot ever be used as a uh, as an opportunity to say, okay, well, Lord, I'm really suffering for you, so now you've got to give me what I want, or you've got to answer my prayers. It's just your way of saying to God, I'm willing to say no to me so that I can get closer to you and be in touch with you. So there's no spiritual effect. It was supernatural, those who were able to fast for that long. It was God who enabled them to do it. The other question is, there's no correlation here, John, between uh, the 2 Corinthians 12.10 passage, uh, for when I'm weak, then I'm, when, then I'm strong. Uh, Paul's simply saying there that uh, when we are relying on Jesus for everything, that's when we are strong because it's his strength manifest in us. So that's the passage of Scripture there. So you don't have to fast at all. Um, but when you fast, if you choose, you can do it as long as you want. A few days, a few hours. But just don't do it as a way to get something from God. As in everything else, whatever you do for the Lord, make sure that your motive is only to praise Him, to draw nearer to Him. I hope that helps. Thank you, John, for for the question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Would Tony just uh, call in and he said, when we read about forty days in Scripture, the Great Flood, Jesus fast. Does that mean literal? Is it exactly forty days? Um, when it talks about a flood. Uh, the great flood lasted a lot longer than, than 40 days. It rained for 40 days, but the flood lasted a long time. Um, Jesus' fast of, of 40 days was literally 40 days. Um, so that's what we're being told there. Um, so when you can read anything in the in the scriptures, Tony, that can be taken literally, um, then take it literally. If it doesn't make sense to take it literally, I'll give an example. The psalm said the trees of the field clap their hands. We know that's symbolic language. It's a poet. Um, but but when you say 40 days, that's 40 days. So there's nothing, uh, three days, um, 40 days. Um, they're, they're to be taken literally as we uh, look into the scriptures. So, Tony, I hope that helps. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy wants to know, in view of Romans 13, was our nation started in disobedience to God? Um, you know, Jeremy, I, I learned something that I didn't know um, recently. I, I learned that this idea of our nation being started in disobedience to God uh, was a part of a homeschool curriculum, and that's why it sort of gained some traction um, but no, our nation was not started in disobedience to God. The people that started our nation were already disobedient to God. That's what we've got to remember. People have always been in rebellion against God, and in some cases, war is a result. And yes, God says to Christians that we're not to disobey the governing authorities. The only exception to that. Uh, we find in two occasions in the book of Acts when somebody tells you to do a government official or or a government process, teaches you to, to do something that conflicts with what the Word of God says to do, then we've got to choose to obey God rather than men. But except for those things, yes, we who are Christians are supposed to be obedient citizens. We're to live our lives quietly, not to draw attention. Why? So that our light can shine in the rest of the world, so we can peacefully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So um, uh, the the founding fathers uh, who rebelled against, uh, of our our nation, who rebelled against England, uh, did so because that was a worldly solution, just like uh, if we would ever have war with North Korea or war uh, in the Middle East again, uh, it would be because that's the human solution to the problems of this world rather than letting the, 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 the solutions come from God. Now, that doesn't mean we need to be anti-war. 
uh, in the sense that all war is wrong. Sometimes there's just wars. Our Bibles are filled with them. But in disobedience, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. It doesn't mean the people that it were chosen were established by God, but the the authority of government was established by God. And um, that means our nation was started because people are sinners and they do what they want instead of what God wants. Uh, I also want to say this, Jeremy. Um, we know, and I, I talked about this in my message just this past Sunday, we know that Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We know that's a tenet of our faith. That's the sovereignty of God on display. So what it means is that God uses even our disobedience to accomplish his purpose. And I told our church this past Sunday because we were teaching in the appropriate passage in Romans chapter 10. I told our church... That, that it's my personal, my strong personal belief that the United States was raised up by God. That doesn't mean we're a Christian nation. It doesn't mean that the people were Christians. But we were raised up by God just as Babylon was raised up as an instrument of God to judge his disobedient people or Assyria or Greece or Medo-Persia or the Romans later. But the United States was raised up by God to be Israel's protector. Obviously, God knew that in 1948, on the heels of six million Jews being exterminated in, 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 or by Nazi Germany, God would move the hearts of the people in this world to bring Israel to their homeland again. An unbelievable miracle, truly the greatest miracle of our lifetimes. On Sunday, I said it was the greatest single miracle of the 20th century. No other nation has ever been away from their homeland for any length of time and came back to the very place God promised them and became a nation again. Well, Israel did. In the United States, by that time, the end of World War II was the strongest nation on earth, and we, we kept that position, not only the strongest, but the wealthiest nation on earth. We kept that position for a very, very, very long time. Some would even argue that we maintain that position now. I'm not sure I agree with that, but that's a, a reasonable conclusion. And God has raised us up to be Israel's ally, Israel's supporter and protector. And we've done that faithfully for most of my lifetime. It's been in the last 10, 12 years when we stopped being 100% committed to supporting Israel. And it is, in my opinion, no coincidence that the Lord's hand has been removed from us, his hand of blessing. Why would God remove his hand of blessing? Well, one, because we're disobedient. But two, because we've taken that blessing and we've mocked God with it. The wealthiest nation in the world, we produce the most pornography in the nation. We're the most blessed nation in the world and have been for a very, very long time. And we kill babies, and we chase God out of our secular culture. We carry on immoral sexual relationships. And we demand that God agrees with us. So I believe with all of my heart that the hand of God's blessing has been removed from our nation. As we plunge into these last of the last days... And I think we're paying the price now. So we too, Jeremy, are disobedient to God. And I'm talking about the church. Judgment begins at the house of God. Hope that helps you a little bit, Jeremy. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Ed. Uh, pastor On, do you think a teaching pastor... Uh, in that that's all he does is really a pastor. And then he says, it seems like the pastor at many churches is not available to the people. Ed, this is a source of heartbreak for me personally. No, um, um, I, I, I hope and pray that there's nobody here at Calvary Chapel that, that feels like I'm not available to them. Uh, 
uh, I'm busy, but but that's that can be scheduled. Uh, I, I want to be available to the people. I want to know the people uh, that I'm teaching, the people that I pastor. It's 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 really important to me. I want to be able to pray for them. I've got a prayer wall in my office at home. It's actually Paula's office, but she lets me use it for the prayer wall. Uh, I got an office where I got pictures of people in my church, hundreds and hundreds of pictures. And I stand before that prayer wall nearly every day and pray for the people. And I don't mean just general prayers. I pray for those by name that I know. I encourage other people to make sure I have their pictures. I'm getting old. I don't want to forget. So so the visual really helps me. But I think that's what it means to be a pastor. Uh, I do understand that in this mega church environment that we live in, that many so-called pastors really do nothing more than teach or perform, and that's intentionally negative. Uh, they're the gifted communicator. They're the one that brings people in the doors. But if they're not with the people, if they can't minister to the people, I don't think they should be called a pastor at so when God says he gives gifts to the church, pastor-teacher is one of those gifts. I think there is a, a, a gifting of teaching that doesn't necessarily make one a pastor. But every pastor has to have the gift of teaching as well. But you don't stop just because you have the gift of teaching. Being a pastor, you've got to care about him. You've got to be able to, to, to pray for him. And if you don't understand that, then you're missing the whole idea of what a pastor is. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep, tend my flock, feed my sheep. As he was reinstating Peter. That's the job that a pastor has. And Ed, when you find somebody who is a teaching pastor and he appears on stage at the end of the worship set and then after he says amen, he disappears off the stage and and he's really not available to the people, uh, I think he ceases at that point to be uh, a, a pastor, let alone an effective pastor. So uh, I just think it's hard. We've, we've had in our church culture such an emphasis on size and on numbers, on what we call success. Uh, we'll put now people on a screen and video them into distant locations. That's not a pastor. That's just somebody who communicates and happens to be good at it. I think that's as much the fault of the flock as it is of, as it is of those uh, people guilty of being teachers. If people wouldn't put up with it, we've gotten so used to video, we've gotten so used to staring into our computer screens, but there's no man whose image is on a screen who can put their arms around you and cry with you when you're grieving. There's nobody that can make sense in a very personal, painful time of what you're going through by being on a screen. Can he teach the Bible? Yeah, he can teach the Bible. But that's just part of the pastor's job. I personally think it's not any more important than loving the people but I think trying to distance the people is or trying to keep your distance from the people disqualifies you from being a pastor. I once had a good friend of mine in Bible college, a young man who believed with all his heart he was called to be a pastor, but he had no patience with people. And he, one time he said, Ron, do you have to like people to be a pastor? And I said, yeah, well, he didn't become a pastor. I love the people that I'm able to, 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 to pastor here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. They enrich mine and Paula's life beyond measure. Uh, and sometimes I think we forget that they're the reason we do what we do. And we fall into the trap bed of thinking that we're the reason the people don't do what they do. I hope that makes sense to you. So, Ed, uh, that's my view anyway. Here's a question from Clark. And this question, Clark... Uh, hits the very deepest parts of my heart. He says, how should we view the teachings of someone who has since fallen into sin and is no longer qualified to teach? I'll give you two answers. I'll give you, I think, the best answer, and then I'll give you my answer. I think the best answer is, as discerning Christians, we can 
um, sort of pick out that which is good. Uh, I, I've had friends who were wonderfully gifted Bible teachers who fell into sin. Uh, it doesn't mean that their teachings have no validity. Uh, it doesn't mean that they didn't have anything to offer. It doesn't even mean, by the way, that they didn't mean it when they taught it. Um, so I, I think if you, there are people that you enjoy listening to and you're still getting something from their teaching, even though they've fallen into sin, um, use that as an example, a warning. If somebody that gifted has fallen, how much more could we fall? And so I think the, the greatest thing that we can get from somebody in that situation, Clark, is 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 to realize that, you know, if I get some distance between me and Jesus, I could fall as well. We have a tendency sometimes to elevate teachers and pastors into a position that's way above us, the rest of us, and it's not so. I've been a pastor for 22 and a half years, and I realize every day that I'm one bad choice from ruining, ruining it all. Now, I've got an extensive teaching library. My notes are available. My audio and videos are available all over the world. I get to talk to thousands upon thousands upon thousands of you every day. My problem with the guy who falls into sin is that he valued his own satisfaction more than he valued the people that he's been privileged to minister to. So, give you the good answer. My answer, Clark, is I have personally the most difficult time listening to somebody, no matter how gifted he might be. It's hard for me to listen to somebody who isn't living what they're teaching. It just doesn't register with me. I, I, I it, 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 it makes no sense. So, for me personally, um, I just don't do it anymore. Uh, there's a lot of great teachers out there, and maybe they're not the really, really slick, gifted communicators. But if they're walking with Jesus, they're the ones that have authority in the words that they teach. So, Clark, I, again, I, I know that sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but uh, that's a very real personal problem that I have. Um, Paul and I have been talking about it a lot. I, I, we've yet to to um, conclude whether or not that's a good problem to have or a or a bad problem to have. If maybe I'm being um, too picky, uh, I, I honestly don't know. I just know that um, I, I want my message to have power because I believe it and I live it, and um, I don't want to be a talking head. I want to be a living, breathing example of following Jesus. So, I hope that helps a little bit. Here is a question from Anonymous. Pastor Ron, do you ever feel like giving up because there's so much evil around? Um, Anonymous, this is a good question leading into our Bible study tonight. And again, I want to emphasize to anybody who's still listening today, uh, tonight, 7 o'clock, we're going to be uh, teaching out of First Samuel 27, uh, and and we're going to talk about David and how the devil uses doubt and discouragement, um, how we give in to our feelings, our emotions, instead of remembering by faith what we know about God. Very timely Bible study. David gave up for 16 months because he felt like it and he did what he felt like instead of what he knew God wanted him to do and there was all kinds of pain as a result um, I've been discouraged many times anonymous I was telling somebody today this has been the most difficult year of my life in every way physically, spiritually uh, everything this has been the most difficult year of my life and there are times when all you want to do is scream, what's the point or what's the use? But you see, the one thing that I've always had is the understanding that I can't give up because 
I don't belong to me. Paul says, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. So I've always understood, and, and I guess it's just a work that God's done in my heart, and I've been trying to communicate this to people for 22 and a half years. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't change who God is. It doesn't change what He's planned for you. All that can happen by giving into your feelings is you end up distancing yourself from God and getting into more trouble. And you end up disqualifying yourself from more of what God wanted to do. So Anonymous, if we get to the point where we understand that we're men and women under orders, and how we feel doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what God has asked us to do. Read the first part, I think the first nine verses of Luke chapter 17. Jesus tells us what a servant does because that's who he is. And we're servants. And we're called by God to be faithful to him. We're called to remember in times of testing and difficult emotional times. We're called to remember who he is and what he's done for us. And then we're called to fight, to get up and get back in the game. And over our years here, we've had some really difficult and discouraging things. But never once did I think, you know what? This is too much, I'm going to quit. Because I don't have that right. I hope that helps a little bit. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. The phones were quiet, but the questions were good. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. Remember, tonight at 7 o'clock, 1 Samuel chapter 27. Read it a couple times. Only 12 verses. Read it a couple times. And then let the Lord prepare your heart for the study. We'll see you tomorrow at 4. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.